Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Kitty Zeldis. Born in Israel, Kitty Zeldis is the pen name of a Brooklyn-based author of nine novels and almost 40 books for children. Her new historical novel, The Dressmakers of Prospect Heights, was published in December. Her fiction, essays, and articles have appeared in numerous national and literary publications, including the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, Cosmopolitan, Family Circle, and Oh, the Oprah Magazine. And she has been the fiction editor of Lilith Magazine for the last 20 years. <clears throat> so welcome, Kitty. And I'm honored. I'm honored to have you here today. I have to tell you that I read your mesmerizing and beautifully written book, The Dressmakers of Prospect Heights, within 24 hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just couldn't put it down until I was finished. So why don't we start by um, giving our listeners a brief summary of the book for those who haven't read it yet. Um, oh, do you want me to do that? Yes, 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 yes. yes. Um, well, this book concerns three women, uh, three very different women. Beatrice, who was born Yevgenia in Russia, a Jewish woman. Uh, the, the essentially ward that she has, Alice, who she's adopted all but legally. And Catherine Beryl, <laughs> whose connection to, to them I do not want to reveal yet. Right. But um, each of this woman has a, these women have a secret. And they have something they want to find out, something they want to have not found out, something they need to repair. And I'd say it's a novel about mothers and daughters and really examines that, <clears throat> excuse me, in some, uh, in some detail. Um, those, you know, what, what those relationships are like and how they affect us and, uh, what else can I say? Set in the 1920s, primarily in Brooklyn, New York, where I live, but has part of the story is set in New Orleans, a city I love, and in Russia, where B comes from. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what I can say about it in a general way. Okay, so I'm I'm wondering um, why you chose the settings of New Orleans and New York City. Um, they're they're almost like characters in the book. Um, how did these particular historical settings allow you to shape this story? Well, that that is a very pertinent question, and I'm glad you asked that because this oh. book essentially began in New Orleans for me, though I didn't know or with New Orleans, I didn't know that when I first visited in the 1980s with my husband, who was a photographer, and we did a lot of road trips, and he'd been to New Orleans before, and he loved it, and he wanted to go again, and he was worried I wasn't going to like it, but he, that did not happen. I adored it. I, I felt and still feel it's a singular American city with French and Spanish and Cajun influences, and you know the way it looks, the Garden District, the French Quarter, the literary aspects, 
uh, streets named Terpsichore and Erato and the streetcar named Desire. I learned the story about that. It was actually Desiree, but anyway. Okay. Uh, so after that trip, that was a wonderful few days, New Orleans was very much on my radar. And I found myself drawn to things about it that I would see and I would read, you know, things that came my way. So I learned that from the period, from the year uh, 1898 to 1917, prostitution was legal in New Orleans. And the reason for this was not because they had some progressive Amsterdam-like understanding of this profession. It was because the criminals who controlled it, I mean, prostitution was so virulent, so deeply entrenched, so out of control that the city fathers felt like the only way they could gain a handle on this was to legalize it. So they did that. There was some Edmund or Edward Story who came up with the idea. He was an alderman. And so these 38 blocks were designated either Storyville or the district. And in this area, it was allowed, you were allowed to function as a prostitute, to have a brothel entirely legally without any, you know, fear of being criminalized in any way. So this spanned a wide range of opportunities, shall we say. There were shacks or hovels called cribs where you could hire a woman for 10 cents. And oh. then along Basin Street, there was a row of mansions, one more opulent and splendid than the next, in which very high class prostitutes would function and work. And as it happened, Basin Street was right across from the train station. So you know, I'm trying to imagine this, like the train pulls in and there is the hapless visitor and there are women in these windows who are scantily clad, trying to entice customers. And like, what's a body to do? People, you know, there's like a lot of choices here. So they, the city uh, fathers again convene and decide they're going to publish a little directory <laughs> in this area. It's called the Blue Book. Initially, it was sold. Very quickly, it, they decided to just give it away. And it, you could get it at the train station, newsstands all over the city. And it listed every single prostitute that was working oh, in this area. And the, uh -huh. the more um, expensive brothels could also pay for advertising, but even those who did not pay were listed. So I happened to see one of these books, you know, some of the entries reproduced, and there was one that went like this, uh, Caucasian, 21 Jewish. Ooh. And this to me like, what? like Jewish girl, prostitute in New Orleans. No one told me that story. I need to know that story. But because I am a novelist and not a historian, I was not especially interested in researching and the, the person you know who had this profile. I wanted to get inside this mind and soul and figure out like, how did, how did she get to be there? Like wow. what made her do that? Um, apart from women and girls and we know there were many of them who were coerced into prostitution through no choice of their own but but of those who chose it for one reason or another why what what made them do that what what in life brought them to that place where that seemed like yes that's the thing i'm going to do so i imagined this woman as a young jewish woman coming from russia where uh, she experiences a lot of anti-Semitism, you know, that period in the late 19th century, filled with pogroms. And, and this was based, at least the early part of her life, very loosely on my grandmother's life. Um, mm -hmm. My grandmother had a father who was a tanner, a profession allowed to Jews because it was so disgusting. Other people did not want to do it. 
urine was a big component in the tanning of the hides. Mm. And so my great grandfather was an uh, uncommonly wealthy man for that time and place you know, for a Jew. And my grandmother had described a house with parquet floors and velvet drapes and crystal chandeliers and older sisters. There were many in that family who took dance and music lessons and older brothers who went to a military academy. Again, things Jewish young men did not do, wow. but uh, because of my great grandfather's money, obviously this exception had been made. And this life came to an abrupt and horrifying end when her father was murdered in circumstances that were not clear to them, but definitely had an anti-Semitic component. And um, her mother, I did not use this part in the novel because I thought there's already like a lot of bad stuff here. We need a little break here. Uh, <laughs> but her mother took poison. And <sighs> she told, my grandmother told me, I remember the burns around her mouth. <sighs> but she didn't die. And she rallied and sold what she could sell and took her youngest children, their five youngest children, to, first to Riga and then to the United States. So I made that part of Bee's backstory, you know, that uh, that sense of being hounded out of your home by forces you can't control. And she finds herself in New Orleans and where she gets alone uh, after her father is murdered, her mother dies essentially of a broken heart. And she finds herself uh, working for, she finds a job working for a family taking care of their child. But then when she meets a young man and falls in love with him and gets pregnant, she loses her job and she's left really on her own. And that's how she finds her way into prostitution. So that was kind of my, yeah, I mean, my just, backstory. Just, uh, just fascinating. Um, I was wondering, um, other than your, um, you know, visiting New Orleans and finding the blue book and everything. Um, what what was your research uh, process like? I mean, did it take you a long time um, to research this? Um, how, how did you go about doing well, that? Lots of reading and looking at pictures and that. Um, I, I know that some people, when they're doing research, you know, have a period that they're researching and then they gather everything right. they've mm -hmm. researched and begin to write. I kind of researched on a need to know basis, oh. like what I found, you know, like what was I curious about? And so then I would go research that. And I did take another trip to New Orleans somewhere in that period. And I have a friend who'd gone to law school in, at Tulane. And mm -hmm. so she had some connections in the city. And one of her law school classmates by that point had retired and become a tour guide. So that was really handy. I wrote to her and I told her what I was looking for. And she she created a custom, like a two-day custom tour for me so that I could see things I wanted to see. Those mansions on Basin Street, all gone. Like, you know, not, not a brick left. And I think that was intentional. The city and the train station no longer even passes Basin Street. They moved the, the no, it, that's not even the location anymore. They've moved it. Because what happened in 1917 was that the United States got into the First World War and New Orleans being a port city was filled with soldiers and sailors and, you know, like lots of people coming in and out. And th there was just too much temptation for these young men. And they were getting drunk, disappearing, getting syphilis. So the federal government stepped in and said, we are going to end this legalized prostitution. The city fought back. It had become part of the economy since 1898 and a very vibrant part of the economy. But in the end, the federal government 
won out and it was um, criminalized once again in November of 1917. And I think that the destruction of those mansions was part of that, you know, came out of that, like, mm -hmm. we're just not even going to think about this anymore. Like this didn't happen. And, yes, yes. You know, that's not who we are. And we're getting rid of the evidence. So uh, I, I've seen photographs and other renderings of these places, but I was never able to see the actual buildings, unfortunately. Well, I, I like seeing those things. Yeah. Well, that uh, that's very interesting to me. So your re research process, it's it's very focused. It's it's as you said on a need to know basis. You're not like I am, who goes down these rabbit holes and spends weeks and months doing research. Good, good for you. Um, what's your writing process like? Um. I, I mean, you obviously write um, fiction and nonfiction. I'm wondering uh, when do you write? Where do you write? How do you I find time? I have a little time? office in my house, um, like the case of musical bedrooms. This was a room that my husband and I shared. Then our son had it. Then our daughter had it. Mm -hmm. and now that everybody's grown up and gone away, um, it's mine and it faces the backyard, the teeny tiny little backyard, and it's very pleasant. And I have to say that when my children were younger, I was better with my time. Like really? I was more focused because you have to be when, you know, I would write from nine to three, essentially five days a week. Wow. Because I thought they deserved a mother who didn't say what in a cranky voice when they asked me something, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. feel like that was the mother I wanted to be. Now that I am on my own here, um, you know, I have, I have more time. I don't always use it as well, but I, I treat the writing like a job, essentially. When I'm like in working on a novel, I get up in the morning, have coffee, take the dog out, get to work, take a break at lunch, take the dog out, go back to work. You know, probably finish up later in the day. And if if I'm really immersed, I might look at what I've written that day after dinner. You know, How I long did it take you to write this novel? This novel seemed to take forever because I had to keep rewriting it. Hmm. it it went through many iterations and and they were very different in my initial drafts more of the story took place in new orleans they the characters only got to new york in the last two chapters mm. so that was a switch and i had a lot of questions and uh you know rethinking the point of view originally i had it in first person ah. so it was only from b's point of view which you know, there are pluses and minuses. It allows for a certain immediacy, but it meant that the other two characters who weren't even really part of it in this way um, were at something of a remove. You know, you never got... Mm, interesting. That's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. I decided to go for, you know, kind of tight third person, which gave me the opportunity to get inside mm. other people's heads. So it took... I want to say it took forever, but... That's not true. I don't know, maybe three years. Something uh -huh. like that. Okay. No. So do you have a preference for fiction or nonfiction writing? Oh, definitely fiction. Is you prefer fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and I was never like you was never a journalist or reporter. I mean, I've written some reported pieces, but the nonfiction I like best was personal essay. I mean, I, oh, I, me too. I too. I do too. Absolutely. I, I really like that. Um, so oh. can you talk a little bit about the genre of historical fiction? Um, how did how did you come to write in that genre? Kind of accidentally. Um, 
I, I didn't really know about it. I had written several novels that were contemporary. And I, I've written historical fiction first for children. Mm. And that wasn't even a conscious decision. It was, I think, because my own development as a reader, when I was a child and I was a big reader, I liked books that were set in the past. Now, they weren't historical fiction. They just had been written a long time ago, like mm -hmm. Anne of Green Gables or Little Princess or A Tree right. Grows in Brooklyn, all written well before my childhood. But I just sort of naturally gravitated right. towards sto stories set in the past. So when I was writing middle grade fiction, I found I wanted to set the stories in the past. Like, you know, I just liked that. And the last novel I wrote under my other name, <laughs> had a historical fiction component in it. And that was also kind of accidental. Uh, it was a novel set in New Hampshire. I had previously set all my novels in New York, sort of my default position, that's where I live. But I was getting a little tired of that. And I thought, I'd like to set a novel somewhere else. And I turned to New Hampshire because it's where my husband is from. And I had spent a lot of time there with him and I had developed certain attachments based on his upbringing there. And I, I feel like place in a novel is kind of an unstated character and that you Absolutely. need to know a place well in order to write about it well. So I felt like, yeah, I could do New Hampshire because we've gone there a lot and, you know, and I kind of absorbed his things he told me. So, but I did think, you know, maybe I, I wanted to see if there was something bigger than my story. I had an idea about these two characters. So I started researching things that happened in New Hampshire. I was kind of looking for a flood or a fire or an epidemic. This was before COVID. Uh, something big that would have affected a lot of people. And what I found was a story about a woman named Ruth Blay, who had the unfortunate distinction of being the last woman hanged in the colonies in 1768. Oh, okay. I know. And she was accused of murdering her newborn daughter not convicted of this, but convicted of concealing the birth of an illegitimate child, which was oh. a capital offense in England. And because in 1768, these colonies were governed by English governors, it was a capital offense here too. And she oh. was hanged in South Cemetery at the age of 32. Mm. I just like couldn't get over that story. So I needed to weave this in. And some sections of that novel were written in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. to, you know, not from her point of view, but someone else uh, that figured into this story in a truly fantastic way, like truth being stranger than fiction. Um, and my agent at the time said, you know, I don't think you need all this historical material. I think you can just do with this one section. But I thought she was wrong. And I uh -huh. listened to her. And I found that the sections that I wrote in the 18th century were absolutely my favorite ones. And I couldn't wait to get to that part of the book as I was writing it, you know, like, oh, I can have another chapter set back here. Oh, good. So when I came to write another novel, um, I had an idea for historical fiction, not not our kind. That was took place in the 20s, uh, 20s, excuse me. This one takes place in the 20s, in the 1940s. So I, I felt like I kind of accidentally stumbled into this thing I really like. Oh, love it. love it. I, I love it. I love it. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's 
it, it just seems to speak to me and to a lot of readers apparently so and, and there's so much you know everything old is new again so mm -hmm. let me get to my next question one of the major themes in the book is pregnancy mm -hmm. both wanted and unwanted can you address this topic particularly in the context of Roe v. Wade's recent overturning. Exactly, like who would have thought that? <laughs> uh, I mean, like a, a very dark day in American history. Right, right, um, right. Because I think it's a, you know, I don't wanna say problem, but issue, you know, a universal and timeless issue mm -hmm. uh, affecting women more obviously than men, um, because we are the ones who have to deal literally with the consequences of this. and it's like the biggest decision you make to have or not have a child. And it will, it will alter your life, whatever you do, you know, it, your life will be shaped by that decision in, in a major way. And, you know, it's been the source of so much um, happiness and unhappiness for us as women. Like, you know, just even talking about Ruth Blay, I mean, the, what about the guy who got her pregnant? Well, like, they never, never talk mentioned. about the guy. I mean, that, you know, uh, that, that to me, that's one of the most amazing things in the whole conversation about, you know, abortion and family planning and the whole issue. They never talk about the guy. That's right. These are not immaculate conceptions. There right. was another party involved here. Mm -hmm. And like, why is that part? Why does that party have no responsibility? Mm -hmm. You know, um, so I will probably always be interested in that. And I have two children and I, I feel like it's almost accidental. Like I wasn't one of these women who wanted children young. I didn't, I didn't think I ever wanted children. So it wasn't until I was in my mid thirties and I'd been married for several years that I thought, well, if you're gonna have a baby, like you probably should try to do it now. <laughs> right. Might not even get pregnant. And I got pregnant immediately oh, and had that baby. And then I thought, oh, you mean you could have missed this? That would really have been unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I make this, there's nothing to do with anybody else. And I think you can lead a perfectly wonderful, um, rich and fulfilled life without children if you do not want them and do not wish to have them. And not everyone should have them. But I found it something that I wanted and I did have a second child after that. And kind of regret, not kind of, I regret not having a third. I, I feel like I had it in me to have one more. All right. Well, I, know, I, I like in my that. heart, like I could have done that. You know, I was, I was up for it, but I didn't, and I didn't. So. Yeah, I regret not having a fourth. So there you go. There, there you go. Okay, <laughs> you're three. Lucky you. Yeah. Um. So, um. Also, an another very um topical uh issue you have in in the book is uh religious persecution uh and an intolerance and um certainly um there's a lot of that um today um there's anti-semitism all all kinds of other um prejudices um what what draws you to these themes and and what do you see as the repercussions of this kind of intolerance well i, I I mean, you're right about that, although my focus is less the intolerance and more what I call the intersection of Jews with non-Jews. Mm. And I say this as a woman who's quite assimilated. I mean, I feel very Jewish, but I would imagine, I've never been Orthodox or very observant, that 
if you are, a lot of decisions are made for you about how you're going to live your life and you know how you're going to worship, who you're going to marry, how you're going to raise your children, what you're going to eat, possibly even where you live. Um, and the community is a strong and tightly knit one that kind of enfolds you and embraces you and sustains you. And I, I think there must be wonderful aspects to that life. But if you don't have that, if you are assimilated as I am, you're constantly coming up against the wider non-Jewish world and finding, and often that means, you know, a lot of intolerance and prejudice and anti-Semitism. And I am continually interested in that, like that place where Jews and non-Jews come together mm -hmm. and how they, how they interact and, you know, what the consequences are of that. I married a man who isn't Jewish right. and I didn't want him to be Jewish. Like I was not, I mean, I never suggested that he convert. I liked who he was, I liked him the way he was, as he liked me, the way I was, you know, and we got a lot of mileage out of our differences and um, a lot of happiness out of it. And I, I feel like, you know, we raise children who, although they are Jewish, the kind of, polarization between Jews and non-Jews that has existed for so long is not at all present for them. Like, but, you know, there's no us and them in this household. Right. So how is it, I, I, I struggle with this question. How is it possible? I don't know what it is. I think it's like 70, 70 percent uh, intermarriage rate. So you have that on on one hand, but you still have anti-semitism i mean how do those two things coexist? because people need someone to hate and historically you know jews are kind of a good outlet um you know despite the kinds of uh tropes we hear about we control everything and you know we're running the world we don't and we're not um we are a minority and we're a we're a, a, a kind of singular minority in the west in that we're the only people in the west who did not become christian and I kind of don't understand that, you know, like, yes, in the East, you know, Christianity didn't take hold everywhere. And there are other religions that are very powerful and right, right. very well part, you know, a part of the culture. But in the West, everybody became Christian. That's, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really. Yeah. Thought. And like, why? And it is, it is, a, I think it is, makes us singular. It is part of our, you know, our pride, our strength. I, I find it curious in a way, like my son, who has a very non-Jewish last name, has said to me, oh, mom, you're always interested in who's Jewish. And I say, you bet I am. Like, how weird is this? That we just, like, we just weren't going to do that. You know, Bartleby the Scrivener in that Melville story. Like, that's what the Jews have been historically in the West. Like, no, thank you. We prefer not to. All that stuff you're doing about, you know, Jesus and all that pageantry and all the celebrations. We're just not going to do any of that. Sorry. Like, <laughs> for us, you know, and like, what? I, I kind of marvel at it. And well, it's amazing because it's so attractive, right? It's, yes, and, and, and take pride. Especially like, at Christmas time, right? Oh, for sure. And now, since I married it, I am the queen of Christmas. Like, uh, you know, uh, and I, I embrace it fully because I feel entitled to it. It's beautiful. I mean, it's you beautiful. cannot, and Hanukkah in no way, shape or form can 
compete with Christmas. Christmas. Well, and my powerful. socialist father wouldn't even do Hanukkah because he said it was a concession to American consumerism. Well, I think it was, but I think it, it was, was, but he was necessary wrong. One. He was yeah. wrong. He should have done it. If, I understand my parents didn't want to celebrate Christmas. They were Jews and they lived in Israel for nine years. As you said, I was born there. My brother was born there. They were Halusim. They, my father moved there in 1949. He dropped out of college. His mother said, Israel, what's in Israel? Sand shit and flies. Like, but he was going. Um, and my mother followed him there. And, you know, it meant a great deal to them. But I think if you're raising Jewish children in a Christian country and there is a Jewish holiday near to the, you know, very important Christian holiday, you should celebrate it for your kids. Absolutely. You know? Were your parents right. born from, from the U.S.? Yes, they're from Detroit. They met oh in a oh Habanim. Wow. And, um, they were very idealistic and very passionate about that life. Wow. And so, you know, that certainly informed my childhood. But I think I think they did not do a good job about Hanukkah. I've no. I've let them know that. Uh, so um getting yeah, getting back to um the dressmakers of Prospect Heights, um, you certainly um speak to the 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 mother-daughter uh relationship um with your with your characters what do you think um it means to to be a good mother and who fits the description and why well that is a good question and i think that there is no one definition of a good mother i think you have to learn to be the right mother for a particular child mm -hmm. um, you know, you've had three, so you, you must have seen that even more clearly. Like my, my two needed different things from me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I had to like look within myself and um, to do that, you know, it didn't seem obvious to me at first, but I, I remember my daughter who, my son would fall asleep like mid-sentence. All the little boys I entertained on sleepovers because he actually went to sleep and they stayed up and I had to entertain these little kids. <laughs> my daughter put her in bed was like a moon launch. It was such a protracted uh, kind of ritualized thing. And one night in, you know, exhaustion, I said, your brain is asleep already. Can't you just go to sleep? And she <laughs> said, you know, at three, with such offended dignity, mommy, James and I are not the same person and we don't go to sleep the same way. <laughs> I had the mouths of babes. Right? I thought, you're right. Like, I'm gonna have to figure out how to be your mom about this issue. So, you know, back to my characters, I think that they needed to find out what that meant to them. Um, you know, be who at first thought she could not be a mother and then later rethinks that and regrets it. Uh, Catherine, who feels like, being a mother is only a biological connection or mm -hmm. primarily and that if that is not present she cannot be a mother right that's that's just how she feels about it and alice who simply doesn't want to be a mother at all in any way shape or form and yet this is thrust on her so they all have to kind of come to terms with that and you know be the mothers or not mothers that they feel you know is the best they can be yeah, well, this is a you know a very um, important theme and and one that um, we could we could discuss endlessly. Um, another theme uh, in your book is is female vulnerability for both girls and women. Um, you want to give um, 
some examples of how that affects your characters? The oh, three characters? absolutely. I, I mean, this is this is my, you know, something I deeply believe that although we are all vulnerable, women are more vulnerable and women are particularly vulnerable to, you know, sexual violence and predation. We just are. As far as I can see, this has always been true. I suspect it always will be true. It seems at this moment there's new attention being paid to it and it is not being accepted in quite the ways it has in the past that people mm -hmm. are. But this is all very, very recent um, and that it's something we have to contend with always. Um, and I feel like it factors into this decision about prostitution. Like that's what I, I see those as connected that B at one point says or thinks, you know, we're women to whom harm has been done. And that kind of sums it up for me. Like, yeah, women to whom harm has been done. And then they keep repeating the harm, you know, reenacting the harm in, in their lives as prostitutes. Uh, now it's, you know, I think it's regrettable, not from a moral standpoint, but from an emotional one. Right. Recreating that dynamic over and over again. And um, so, yes, you know, Catherine in this novel has been spared and I see her as like quite apart from the other two. Mm -hmm. But both B and Alice have been subject to predatory male behavior, sexual behavior that has done them wrong. And can you ever escape your past? Uh, maybe escape isn't the right word, but, you know, maybe you come to terms with it and it no longer governs your present in the same mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. You can leave it in the past and that it's yeah. not. Leave it, yeah. Walking, you know, beside you, you know, doesn't have you by the throat all the time. Right. That's the, that's maybe the best you can hope for. And, um, I just have I have one more question about your your characters. Um, how does you know be being an outsider uh, play out in the lives of your heroines? Well, maybe to some extent we all feel like outsiders. Uh, you know, to the outsider, it seems like she's the only one, and that other people have access to something she doesn't. But it makes you both vulnerable but also gives you a certain kind of strength and awareness um, of your position and forces you to be more thoughtful perhaps introspective because you don't just accept things that are given you know you have to find your place and work a little harder so i don't think it's a bad thing to be an outsider exactly Okay, so who do you who do you think is the audience for your book, Kitty? Well, mostly women. I I I know I have some male readers, but I think these are women's primarily women's stories. You know, with women front and center, and there are men in this novel, but they are not they are not the primary characters by any means. Um, so, I think we as women need stories in which we are the subjects and not the objects you know that it's not absolutely absolutely so um i'd like to ask you uh what's next for you 
I am working on another novel. I didn't think I, this novel was took, it was so difficult for it to be born that I thought I don't have to write another novel. <laughs> I don't have to write another novel ever. I can just write some children's books. And then as sometimes happens when you are lucky, like a character came to me. For me, it very much starts with character, you know, and started telling me her story. And so mm -hmm. I have gone to work on that and it is, I don't want to say too much about it, except that it is set in the forties. Like it's much better than the twenties. Twenties was fave, much best, My favorite time. Yeah, though. I think it's just it's just more available without even having to research. Like it's as almost as if you've been researching it all your life and not knowing it. Like watching the films and seeing the photographs. You know, the forties are just more available. The twenties you have to work harder to get at. And again, it deals with this intersection of Jew, non-Jew. Like mm -hmm. that's that will be a major theme in it. Um, uh -huh. So how far along are you with that? Oh, just a few chapters. So okay. it will, and I, my grandfather used to say of me, schnell, schnell. So uh, fast, fast, for those who don't know um, that bit of Yiddish. I tend to work quickly, but then I have to go through a lot of drafts. Uh-huh. Like 10, 12 drafts. Oh my I, I goodness. Have a, a friend who's a very poised, um, assured and graceful writer. I'll even say her name, Patty Grossman, Patricia Grossman. And her first drafts are very much like her final draft. Mm. You know, there's not a big difference, but she works much more slowly. Mm. So she's, she's kind of doing it as she goes. Mm -hmm. And I find I can't do that. Like I, I, for me, the editing function and the writing function need to be separate, like milk and meat. You know, like I am, like I believe in the value of editing, but not while I'm writing. Like but it, but there must be, isn't there, um, I don't know if the word is relief or accomplishment or something in getting that story down and, and yeah. then editing it, right. you know, it's, like it, at least it's, it's, it's not like worrying, oh no, you right. know. The blank page or the blank screen in this case. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay, there's a manuscript. It's not done. Right. So I, I, it needs work, but I have something to work with. Exactly. As to just yeah. having nothing and thinking about like how I'm going to get something to work. Okay. So I, I work better that way. Yeah. Um, so we, um, before we end, would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you and your book? Um, yes. A book is widely available. Independence, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, I am Kitty Zeldis on Instagram. I am Kitty Zeldis on Facebook. So please come and say hi to me or, you know, anything else that you want to say. Writers without readers are no one. Like, what am I doing? You know, talking to the dog. She's not here right now. But, I mean, she's a darling, but she's illiterate. Like, I need people. <laughs> I'm writing. I need people to read it. And she's, she can't do that. So um, I love to hear from readers. I, I treasure them. Each and every one is precious that you know, yeah. wants to pick up my book and read it. I feel very honored and grateful. So I love to hear it's from a wonderful, and, It's a wonderful book. And the internet has made that very possible, you know, to interact with people. Yes. And I yes. really, I really like that. Um, when I'm on Instagram and I see posts about my book, I will post a comment that says, if you want a bookmark or a signed book plate or both, you know, DM me and I will send it to you. Like, I want to be in touch with you if you want those things. I, I would like to send them. Well, so, and and people cool. do. They like to, they, so that, I'm saying that to all your listeners, too. It's wonderful well, to connect with readers. It's just, it's, 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 it's the best. Crazy. 
great. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Uh, no, you had some excellent questions and I feel like they allowed me to, you know, touch on the main points of the book and I hope that they will inspire future conversations among readers. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. The, the book is, is delightful. Uh, it's the Dressmakers of Prospect Heights. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kitty Zeldis. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain the author of the post-Holocaust novel, The Takeaway Men. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, will be published in April. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylane.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book. <laughs>